it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. My grandpa Ray... He told stories. He was a World War II vet, greatest generation, Pacific theater. Uh, He was on a a battle cruiser, and he told lots of stories about the war. He came back from the war, Manhattan Beach, married my grandma Jean, worked in real estate, smoked like a chimney. I remember some of my earliest memories were just remembering Grandpa Ray telling stories, just lighting one heater after another. I don't know, you know, the greatest generation, they, they... when they came back, they came back to life. And, they, and as he came back to life, he came back and he was a storyteller. One of, some of my favorite memories are being up in the mountains, sitting at the kitchen table and just listening to him tell jokes, tell stories, uh, kind of wind a good yarn, if you will. He had the charm of a great storyteller. Maybe you know somebody like this in your life. The charm of a great storyteller. You know, where you just found a comfortable seat by the fire, and if you were quiet, you would learn something. You would feel something. You would be provoked to think about something in the presence of a great storyteller. And stories are a powerful way we learn. I don't know if I want to repeat everything that I learned from my Grandpa Ray. Um, he was a pretty salty guy, but he was, I loved him deeply. He's one of the reasons why our second oldest has the middle name Ray, because of our, my beloved Grandpa Ray, a great Irishman who served our country well. Stories are a powerful way we learn, and Jesus knew this. Jesus knew this, which is why so much of his recorded teaching is in story form. By our estimates, about 35% of Jesus' teaching, 35%, over a third of his teaching, is in the form of story. Parables is what we call them. It's an old-timey way to just say stories or to say tales of some kind. By my re- by, we have record of Jesus telling anywhere, it depends on who you talk to, all the parable scholars out there, either somewhere between 37 parables and 65 parables, depending on who you talk to. By my count, I'm somewhere between 39 and 44, as I've kind of put them together and kind of worked out the teaching. We're not going to have 34 weeks of this. We are going to go for this summer looking at the stories of Jesus, not each and every one of them, but many of them, some representative stories that might help us to find the heart of Jesus, to find the voice of Jesus in many ways. If you want to find the voice of Jesus, you know how people will say, 
you know, I felt like Jesus was telling me something. And you, you, you might have been in the presence of somebody who would say, I thought Jesus, I thought I, I experienced God saying something to me. One of the best ways we have a sense of the voice of Jesus is we put our hearts on his teaching, and by listening to these parables, we get a sense of, boy, that sounds like something Jesus might say. And every once in a while, we'll come across someone in our lives that says, I feel like God is telling me to do something, and we think, that, well, maybe we think that doesn't sound like anything Jesus would say. Or maybe we say that sounds exactly like the sort of thing that Jesus would say. The only reason we know that is because of his teaching and these parables that we're going to look at. So nearly 35% of the recorded teaching is in the form of story. And just to say this, Jesus had the charm of a great storyteller. Like my grandpa Ray I don't know if Jesus would have uh, sucked back the lung darts kind of just like Grandpa Ray did, but lung cigarettes, I'm trying to, you know, just thank you, everybody. I'll be here all week. Okay, but you might know someone who has that charm and to understand that Jesus had that charm. If you just sat by and listened, you would be provoked. You would learn something. You would feel something. You might not even like Jesus very much, but you would be engaged with him because he was a great storyteller. There's power in stories. And one of the reasons why stories are so significant is because they are what communication experts, scholars call indirect communication. Now let me explain the power of story. Oftentimes when we have something to say to somebody and we say it directly to them, their defenses go up, especially if you want them to do something. For example, when we, we have a chore chart at home, okay? I'm going to throw all of my kids under the bus as well as myself. We have a chore chart, and it's like uh, you hear the voice, you know, uh, to the kids, kids, who's got dishes? You know, you can, you can almost hear the eye rolling like, oh my gosh, here we go again, right? I don't know if you've ever experienced this, okay? No one else has. I'm alone. I'm just on an island up here. That's okay, because I know that this is true, that when you try to directly say something, that people's defenses go up. The pastor asking for money, here it comes, right? You, you, we, when we directly communicate, sometimes it comes across as a lecture. So the, the kid comes in late at night, Where were you? Oh, don't lecture me. You know, immediately, direct communication is going to be, any kind of direct communication sounds like a lecture, and that's why, and we've all experienced this where we've had it done to us, that in the middle of an argument, someone might say, let me tell you a story. And to get their point across, it's not direct communication, it's what we call indirect communication. Stories allow us to learn something, not through the front door, but through the back door. Stories allow us to learn something, even if, we're, even if we're opposed to listening to the person. The story has a way of getting in through our defenses and finding something in our heart to our head. Stories make us feel things, and the best teachers we've had and the best things we've learned have connected not only our thoughts, but they've connected us to feeling, to an experience. And that's why sometimes when we think about certain things, we can't help but feel those things because that was the context 
in which we learn that Jesus understood Jesus who had plenty of opponents, Jesus who was provocative, Jesus who was a disruptor, taught often through the back door, through parables, through stories, because Jesus had the charm of a great storyteller. When you say, let me tell you a story, it's softer, more memorable, and often a more effective way to get your point across. Slow down. Let me tell you the story of the tortoise and the hare. It's a different way of saying that. You could say, uh, tell the truth. Or you could tell the story of the boy who cried wolf. You could say, don't break into houses and eat people's food and sleep in their beds. Or you could just tell the story of Goldilocks and the three bears. All right, you guys get the idea. Really highfalutin stuff here with stories. But it, the, the story in the hands of a gifted storyteller makes a memorable point. You get caught up in the story rooting for the hero or sometimes even rooting for the villain, like in Goldilocks, right? You kind of, anybody, not root, anybody root for the bears in that? Maybe, okay? I don't know. Here, John, we'll talk later, John. It's okay. But that's the point of story. It hits us in different places as we hear them. Your feelings are what cements the truth. Before bedtime, children do not say, Grandma, tell me some facts. They say, tell me a story. Because they want to learn something and they want to feel something and they want to be connected to their grandma, their grandpa, their mom, their dad. Stories have a way of doing this. And so this summer we're taking a look at Jesus and the way he told stories. To connect with him. To connect with ourselves and to see what Jesus might be saying to us. In one way, the stories of Jesus stand on their own. But stories, and stories have a life of their own, don't they? No matter what the intent of Jesus was, some of these stories have a life of their own, but not every story of Jesus is self-interpreting. And so I'm going to do a little mansplaining. You, I don't want to, what, you know what mansplaining is? I, it's, all right, there you go. See, trying to explain the things that are already explained. Sometimes those of us who comment on Jesus' stories, we might be trying to explain something that if you just let it sit, might, might do better sitting, and sometimes the parables of Jesus are, are good that way. But we also have to remember that these stories, these parables, were communicated with intent, and that intent came 2,000 years ago on a different content, in a different language, in a different socio-cultural -loca uh, location, and so some, some splaining, to quote Ricky Ricardo, that a little splaining might be helpful with these parables. All right, I'm feeling good today. I mean, we're, we've got Ricky Ricardo, we've already had, we talked about my grandpa Ray, this is so good. So let's open up to Luke chapter 15, as you probably are already open there, however you're looking at God's word, and let's take a look at these first two parables, particularly the story of the lost sheep and the story of the lost coin. Now, not always, when Jesus tells a story, do we get a context of where he's at or the situation that he's in? But here in Luke 15, we have a really interesting context for where Jesus tells this story and the occasion that he tells this story in. Look at Luke 15, verse 1. It says this, Now tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, to him, to, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, they grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. 
And the first thing we need to know about Jesus as we get to know Jesus, and we've already, we've gone through the gospel of Mark, and if you've known Jesus for some time, you've probably read through the gospels, but one of the first things that we need to understand about Jesus that we need to know, and you can't get very far in the gospels without understanding that Jesus has this habit of befriending people with seedy reputations. The kingdom of God is like a man who befriends a bunch of people with seedy reputations. And that's one of the things that we have to understand about Jesus. Jesus had been gathering around, it says tax collectors. Maybe a better term would be toll collectors. These are Jewish collaborators with the military, the Roman military occupation. And when you ever, if you ever conquer the known world, I'll tell you what you do, you tax people. If you want to make money, why do you conquer people? You don't just conquer people to conquer people. You conquer people so you can get their resources. Okay? I don't, I mean, I don't want to run a how-to. We'll have a class on that over the summer about global conquering. No, I'm just kidding. But that's the idea. It, when you conquered people, you would have to collect taxes. And the best way to do that is if you wanted to know the population is you would enlist some people within the local population who knew everybody in town to collect that tax. And you would assign them some Roman muscle, Guido and Knuckles, the Roman centurions, that would go alongside you and you would collect tolls from all the people in the city, and if they wouldn't pay, then you would get a knock on the door, and it would be Guido and Knuckles who would make you an offer you couldn't refuse, okay? Now, that made toll collectors very wealthy, because they would not only collect for what they needed to pay to Rome, but hey, I, I got a, it's a job, and I got, for my time and troubles, I need to collect a little bit, on, you know, for a little something for the, you know, the effort, Right? So toll collectors, tax collectors, would not only collect for Rome, but they would estimate what they could collect on top of that for themselves. And they became tax collectors, toll collectors in, in, uh, in Israel in the first century, became very wealthy people. They also became very much outcast in the village because all of their friends knew that this person was getting rich off of their hard work and the only thing that they did was they sold out their people to get in bed with the Romans. And so if you were a tax collector or a toll collector, you were an outsider. You were wealthy, but you were a social outcast. Sinners was a term that says that he was Tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes mumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It's, a, it's kind of a global term, a, a, an overall term, an umbrella term for anyone who could not be counted among the category of righteous, religiously righteous. And that meant that very, various occupations that were somewhat seedy or you couldn't be Torah observant in, uh, that you would be counted as a sinner, a, a people of the land, what they would call the Am Haaretz, the, the people of the land. They, you couldn't be religiously pure. You couldn't keep Torah because of what you did or, or what you said or your character traits or, your, or maybe flaws or maybe a disability. These would be oftentimes known as sinners. They must have done something wrong for God to curse them as he has. Torah teaches that God has high standards, and these people were far beyond the pale. Now, Jesus, when he hears this grumbling, if he was like me, who's like, I'm like, tell me the facts, he could have just said, hey, don't grumble, join me in restoring the lost. But Jesus said instead, let me tell you a story. 
And so Jesus, hearing this grumbling, he says, well, let me ask you a question and tell you a couple stories. Look at 15.4. And he tells the first of two parables. Very memorable parable. What man among you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? All right, let's just stop there. Because the parable of the lost sheep is not necessarily the parable about a sheep, is it? It's a parable about a shepherd, right? Because he's asking this question, which person among you? Now, in order to understand what's going on and what Jesus is doing with this parable, we've got to get in the Wayback Machine and go back to the first century and ask the question, what, was, what were shepherds? Okay, And the answer to that question is, um, the profession of shepherd... Jesus is baiting his audience. Because in the ancient world, in the first century, we actually have records of rabbis in the first century when commenting on Psalm 23 that they say this, in the whole world, we find no occupation more despised than that of the shepherd, who all his days walks about with his staff in his pouch, yet David presumed to call the Holy One a shepherd. So we've got this, these competing sensibilities about shepherd that it's not, it's not a great occupation, that it also says in, um, in the Mishnah that shepherds are assumed to be robbers because they leave their sheep to graze on other people's land. Shepherds don't own land of their own. They just lead sheep around eating everyone else's grass. So shepherds are presumed to be robbers. Shepherds are listed among those ineligible to be witnesses because of their poor character in the Talmud. At the same time, God is described as a shepherd in Psalm 23, in Genesis 48, and in Genesis 49. It's an image that we might all know and embrace God as. But in the first century, there was tension about the idea that God was being a shepherd. Shepherds were not the people you invited to party. Shepherds were not people that were particularly looked upon like, oh gosh, he's a great shepherd. There, that's an oxymoron. There is no great shepherd. But God is described as a shepherd. I guess we'll allow it if David does it. That's what the rabbis were saying. I guess that's going to be okay. And so in Luke 15, 4, when Jesus speaking to the Pharisees who are already grumbling, when he says, which man among you if he had a hundred sheep and one of them left, wouldn't go after that sheep, you could almost hear them saying, um, does he think we're shepherds? But then the rhetorical value of this is we find later in, in the Old Testament that not only is God called a shepherd, but the leaders of Israel are also called shepherds. In Ezekiel 34, it, just talk, it talks all about the leaders of Israel as shepherds. And so you have this really interesting moment where Jesus is like, you guys are grumbling. Let me tell you a story. Which among you, if you had a hundred sheep and one went astray, and they're like, are you calling me a shepherd? Oh, I, well, I guess I am a shepherd. Yes, I am a shepherd, but are you calling me a shepherd? Like, there would have been this, this, this tension. I'm not a shepherd, but I guess I am a shepherd. And the question is, what does a good shepherd look like? And the way Jesus describes a shepherd, by the way, if shepherds were present, 
They may have been. There may have been some. But if any shepherd was present and Jesus said, which man among you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open country and go after the one that is lost, all of the shepherds would look at each other like, would you do that? That sounds dumb. And if you read this, Jesus is saying, if you had a hundred sheep and one ran away, would you not leave the 99 in the wilderness? The word is the wilderness. And every shepherd is looking at each other like, no. What I would do is I would find either another shepherd to, to watch my flock, or I'd go put them in a pen, or I'd find a sheepfold somewhere to quickly get them in so that then I could run out, or, or I might just count my losses. A hundred sheep in the ancient world, if you, had, if you wanted wealth, there was no such thing as like paper money in the ancient world, or credit for that matter, or banks for that matter. It was all coinage. You could either have your money in coinage, or you could have it in assets, land, okay? Landed assets or, or things on that land like a flock of sheep. And sheep would have been an investment, the wool, the milk, all of that stuff. And so if you were in a, if you were in a pasture and maybe one of your sheep ran off or there were wolves or there were dogs or something like that and they, they peeled off one, you might say, look, it's time to cut the loss, get these other sheep to safety, and maybe then I'll go back out and get the carcass of that other sheep because it's done for. This was an investment. And so you, like, Jesus has just upset everybody listening to him. Are you calling me a shepherd? I'm no shepherd like that. Which person among you wouldn't do this? And no one is raising their hand. We would secure the flock. We'd hand it off. 100 sheep is a sizable investment. 100 sheep is a sizable investment. Usually you get a flock about 20, 30, 100 is a pretty good size flock. Jesus has their attention. Which man of you, having 100 sheep, if he lost one, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? But after the initial shock, and especially with the idea that God is called a shepherd, eventually that probably his audience realizes what Jesus is doing here. The image of the, what the shepherd does next is somewhat accurate to Palestinian shepherding. A lost sheep, we are told, usually lies down when it is lost and gives up and bleats. It doesn't try to find its way home. It just lies down wherever it's at. It realizes it's lost. And because of sheep and anxiety, they sit down and they just start bleeding. Bleating, not bleeding, bleating. And they sit down. They oftentimes will not even respond to the shepherd's call. That the shepherd must actually go find the sheep. And then there's a number of things you could do if you were a shepherd. And this is why shepherds had staffs. Because if you had a sheep that wouldn't stand up, what you would do is you would poke it until it stood up. You got 100 sheep, man. Look, I mean, we, I've seen the way the preschoolers run around here. Sometimes, you know, they, they respond to voice commands, right? And your kids might do that. Sometimes they need to be corralled, right, physically. Or they need to be, I mean, we don't do this here at the children's house, but sometimes you might have to prod people to get up in the morning or something like that. 
It might involve a little prodding. This is why shepherds had the, the, their, their staffs with the crook on it. They could pull sheep. They could poke sheep. And so when Jesus says, well, which one of you would just pick the sheep up and put it on his shoulders? They say, yeah, that's what I've got a staff for. But sometimes, well, sheep can weigh up to 70 pounds. 70. You think about a good 30-pound sheep, small sheep, a good 50-pound sheep, right? Maybe you go and you pick up little, um, uh, you're doing some cement work or something, you pick up those bags of cement at Home Depot or something like that. It's a good 50 pounds, 70 pounds. Pick that up, put it on his shoulders. Sheep are so frightened that they simply will not stand up or walk, so this shepherd hoists the sheep, 30, 50, 70 pounds, and starts walking back to the flock. In 15.6, and when he comes home, he collapses from a long day of work and having to walk multiple miles with 70 extra pounds. Oh, that's not what it says, is it? That's not what Jesus said. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. He calls together his friends and neighbors, and he throws a celebration, which involves pro- implies food and wine and entertainment that is likely far more than the market value of the sheep. What is going on in this parable? This is the parable. This is not the parable of the lost sheep. This is the parable of the reckless shepherd. This is the parable of the compassionate shepherd. This is the parable of the extravagant shepherd. And Jesus then makes it clear that this is not about a parable about shepherds at all. This is a parable about God. When he says in 15.7, he says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I think as we, as we think about this parable and as we think about putting ourselves in that situation and Jesus offering this parable that puts us at this crossroads about, should I consider myself a shepherd? Of course I'm a shepherd. Like, and the leadership of Israel, it's a provocative parable. And the intent of Jesus is to prod people, much like a shepherd, into a direction that he would like them to go. And as we think about this parable of the reckless shepherd, the compassionate shepherd, the extravagant shepherd, that there are, when we think about that this is more about God, then as we take a second look at this parable, we ask the question, well, what is God like? And as we look at this parable, as well as the parable that follows the woman with the lost coin, there are three verbs in each of these parables that describes the action and activity of God. What is God's posture in this current stage of life? As Jesus is on the planet, and I would argue even now, what is God's posture as a shepherd, as a woman who's lost a coin? And it says this, as we we look back at at that parable, the first parable, It says that he's lost one of them. He leaves the 99 in open country, and he goes after the one that is lost. 
until he does what? He finds. And once he has found, what does he do? He comes home and he gathers people to do what? To celebrate, to rejoice. What are the three things that God is doing? He is going out and going after. He's finding and he is rejoicing. And to bring that point home, Jesus says, well, let me tell you another story about this lady who has 10 coins. And if he was telling this story, if he was telling this story in Capernaum, in Capernaum they build their houses with these huge, um, with these huge like volcanic rock stone. If you, if you go, and we'll go in the spring, we're gonna have a Taft Avenue trip to Israel in the spring, okay? God willing. Um, but you can go to this, you can go to Capernaum and you can see these stones that they build the floor in the house, but they're volcanic stones. And if you've seen volcanic stones, you know they've got all these little pits and all of these little air holes in, in there that if you had coins, they might easily go between the cracks of stones or get lost in, in the stones. As a matter of fact, when they were doing the excavations on Capernaum and they were digging up stones from this house that was presumed to be Peter's house, they actually found coins in the stones, so the story that he's telling is this woman who's put in charge of 10 coins, of, of the family bank, essentially. She's got these 10 coins and she loses one. And so what does she do? Because she is also an image of what God is like. What does she do? It says in 15.8, she seeks diligently until she does what? She finds. And then what does she do? She calls her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice. When we think about these parables, this is not about a lost coin or a lost sheep or even about a crazy shepherd or a woman. This is about the seeking, finding, rejoicing God that is actively looking for the lost. And in the person of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus, we ask, what is God like? And we answer that question by, well, what is Jesus like? What is Jesus doing? And Jesus is actively in the process of seeking, of finding, of rejoicing, because that is what God does. That's what the kingdom of God is about. That in the kingdom of God, the sensibilities are the kingdom of God is filled with seeking. Seeking after lost things. You have to think, how much does God want lost things? God is a great seeker. And when he finds, he's a great finder too. God's a great finder. And some of you guys know that because you ran from God for part of your life. But God found you. And when you think back on it, you might, there might be a, a part of you that one time, at one point I, I described it as that I, I came back to God. Look, the, the sheep doesn't come back to God, the shepherd. The coin doesn't jump up and say, here I am, I'm repenting. The shepherd finds the sheep, the woman finds the coin. Next week we'll talk about the parable of the prodigal son, better known as the parable of the compassionate father. The father has to go out and find his sons. The activity of the kingdom is seeking out and finding the lost and rejoicing when 
they are found. Luke 15, 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. They need no finding. Luke 15, Ted, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels over one sinner who repents. And to the crowd of grumbling religious leaders, he is saying, will you join me in the work of the kingdom? And he does so by telling a story. Because Jesus would have been a very crafty storyteller. Two things as we think about this, and for us today, as we bring this into our 21st century context, two things. First is this, and this is, see, here's my direct communication, right? So what I'm doing is this is direct communication. I'm just going to say this directly, and that is this. Have you found yourself grumbling about the lost? It's easy to do. It's easy to do, and I'm not immune to it, and neither are you, and if you watch cable news, it's really easy to do. Grumbling about the lost is why news organizations make money. I was listening to this podcast, Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart, um, I don't know if you know Patrick, and I'm a Star Trek Next Generation fan. Anybody in here? Yeah, John luc Picard, I appreciate that. Anyway, Patrick Stewart, on this podcast, he was talking about um, in the morning, what, what he would do is he wouldn't read um, he, he would just, he wanted to read novels because he, he didn't want to read the news because that was all, it made him angry. And he didn't want to read scripts because that was work. And so he would read novels. But the idea that I think was really insightful, what he said, he would, he basically said, I wouldn't read the news because it just made me angry. No matter what side of the aisle you're on, the, the news is designed to make you angry. Okay? I'm just telling you that. I don't mean to break it to you, but it's designed to make you angry. It's designed to make you grumble about the lost. There's plenty of lost people on the news. And let me just say this. If you found yourself grumbling about the lost, okay, there were people around Jesus who grumbled about the lost too. And Jesus will make the point that he will go out to them just as much as he goes out to the other lost people. In the kingdom of God, there is a priority and joy in finding lost things. Let me say that again. As followers of Jesus in the kingdom of God, there is a priority and joy about finding lost things. Lost people. That there's a, there's a, it's, a, it's a cause of great joy for the Father, for the shepherd, for the woman, for God, for Jesus. It is a point of joy. Have you felt some joy recently? And if you haven't, this is what I would urge you to do. Go and find some lost things. You're like, I haven't lost anything. Well, go find something that's lost for someone else and go get it. Go find some lost stuff. Go find some lost people. If you want joy, go after the lost. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom of God. Will you embrace the sensibilities of the kingdom and join Jesus in his seeking, finding, and rejoicing mission? And the second thing, 
whether you, I, we've all been in a grumbling spot before, and, and finding ourselves in these parables and these stories is helpful. Am I a grumbler, or maybe I'm a lost sheep? Maybe I've, I'm a little lost. Have you found yourself lost at times? Every once in a while, we can get off the path. Every once in a while, we can get off the path. For a short time, maybe. Maybe for a not-so-short time. Maybe for a long time. And being off the path, off the way of Jesus, off the path, not pointing towards God, it can be overwhelming. It can also be hardening. It can harden us when we're off the path. Maybe we don't want to or can't turn around. Or maybe like the sheep, we can't even stand up. We are just off the path and we have not found not only have we not found our way back, but we cannot find our way back. Let me just say this to you. God will go to great lengths and to great expense to find you. He will find you. God will find, he will break down every barrier until he finds his sheep. He is the good shepherd. He will find you, and he will not poke you or prod you or hit you with his stick when he does, or even berate you or lecture you. He will pick you up, and he will put you on his shoulders, and he'll talk to you while he walks you home. I love that Jesus says, he says at the end of the parable, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. What does repentance look like? Well, in these parables, repentance looks like just being found. And just allowing him to pick you up and carry you. I think repentance, rep the word repent is just the word turn. It's turn. In Hebrew, it's the word shuv, which means to turn, or metanoia in Greek. It means to turn. You're facing in one direction, but the idea is that you turn to face God. You turn to properly to orient yourself towards God. And this idea that what a sheep does when it's bleeding and it's, out, it's sitting down and it won't get up and the shepherd comes to find it, all it can do is turn and look toward the shepherd. And sometimes that's all we can do in the moments when we know that we are so lost and we understand that when God comes to us, that he comes as a good shepherd. He goes, I know you can't get up. And I'm not coming because I know, I know there's something about you or there's something great about you or your value. Look, I'm going to throw a party that is far above your market value. I don't know what your market value is on this earth. And I don't really care what your market value is on this earth because God could give a rip about your market value. He will come after you. He will come to find you. And in this parable, he is reckless. He leaves the 99. We're going to sing a song. We're going to sing a song after this. It's had some controversy about it. It's called Reckless Love. And it, it, has, this li it has these lines in it. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. 
Look, I get that God is sovereign. He's not reckless. God's not reckless. God knows what he's doing. But if you don't like the idea of reckless love, take it up with Jesus. Because when he wants his, the people around him to know what God is like, he tells the story of a reckless, compassionate, extravagant shepherd who goes to the lengths that no other shepherd would go to to find his sheep and to love his sheep and to bring his sheep home and to rejoice with his friends because what was lost is now found. Let's pray together. Father, we come, we come to you today admitting that you are a bit of a mystery to us. We do not understand everything that you are, but we do understand enough about you because you have sent your son Jesus to explain what you are like, to live and to model your love. And Father, we want to fix our eyes on Jesus. And even as we begin this summer series on parables, we just want to say we want to sit by the fire and hear these stories. We ask that these stories would have their way with us, that they would come in the back door, that they would disarm us, that we might hear the voice of Jesus, that we might see you in a new light. Father, we are so grateful that you would find us. And even now, Father, I feel like I just, I would ask you, continue to find me. Continue to find all of our people here. There's, there's not a day that goes by where I do not need to be found by you. Father, may we resolve afresh this morning that we want to be found. Father, we love you, and we thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name.